Let me invite your attention to Exodus chapter 14 as we dismiss our kids to children's worship. Exodus chapter 14. Turn there with me. You know, that choir's gotten a little too big for this platform, the whole music ministry. It's really too big for this whole platform. Isn't that something? What a marvelous, marvelous work they have done. Bless the Lord for that. Exodus chapter 14. Um, Stuart, I don't know if these kind of things go through your mind. Uh, well, I'm sure they do, uh, knowing how much you love preaching and how, how much God's hand has been on you. But um, I, uh, I've got two texts I want to preach when my preaching days are coming to an end. The last two Sundays of my preaching ministry, there are two texts I want to preach on. Now, my grandfather, uh, great-grandfather Jones, pastored and preached till he was 92 years old. So I hope that's not anytime soon, but the older you get, you know, your diaphragm constricts, it's harder to get things out, and, and there comes a day when uh, preachers have got to lay their sword aside. I don't anticipate that day coming anytime soon, but I've already determined there are two texts I want to preach on my last two Sundays that I'm able physically to preach. One, I, I'm hoping God will give me at least a one-day harvest crusade to gather up all and to invite all of those who don't know Jesus in the community to come and give me the opportunity to tell them about John 3.16 and how much God loves them and how much God loves you and to invite them, men, women, boys, and girls present, to turn to Jesus and to meet Him, just like I did when I was 16 years old and I've never been the same. And the second text, I think, will be this one. Because it addresses doing the will of God. And when I was younger, uh, I was taught that uh, I needed to be intense, fervent, and singularly focused on doing the will of God, even at the expense of slaying and crucifying my own will. And the verse we quoted often was Luke 9, 23. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I, I want to preach this text as one of the last two that I end up preaching in my ministry. And I want to preach that to God's people because there is nothing more important than doing the will of God. In fact, George Truett said, uh, uh, success is knowing and doing the will of God. And then he said, knowing the will of God is the greatest knowledge. Finding the will of God is the greatest discovery. And doing the will of God is is the greatest achievement. There is nothing that you and I can do that is more urgent and important than the will of God. And aren't you glad God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with His will? He makes it abundantly clear through the Scripture, the example of heroes of the Bible, especially Jesus, all of His commandments, all of His promises, and within those boundaries of His Word, the options that we've got within His Word, the leadership of His Holy Spirit and the counsel of the people of God. So really the biggest favor I can do for you today is to encourage you and exhort you to abandon all, compete, all competitors and all alternatives and to embrace the will of God and the will of God alone. And that's what God is moving Israel to do here in the text. What has happened is that God has brought them through or is about to bring them through the Red Sea and send them to the promised land. Now he got them to that point by um, 
unshackling them from Egypt, where Pharaoh had held them uh, in slavery. And it made their lives a terrible, terrible misery. And he um, really uh, became rather intense about this in the last of the ten plagues that he sent upon Egypt. And that happened to be the death of the firstborn of everything, every bit of livestock uh, and, and humans as well. However, Israel, if they were to take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel, uh, the death angel would see that and would pass over that home. And that's why we call this um, celebration in Exodus 12 and 13, the Passover celebration. And Israel would commemorate that every year until God's own lamb showed up and was offered on the altar of Calvary as the final Passover lamb. It pointed to Jesus. Well, they've gone through this. They've been redeemed. They've been covered with the blood. They're exiting Egypt now. And in chapter 14, God begins a pattern with Israel that lasts to chapter 17 and actually picks up in several chapters and stories in the book of Numbers. Now, the pattern is much like this. And I want to show you a chart and display this on the screen. Uh, you have in chapter 14, the story of the Red Sea. God deliberately leads them to the Red Sea where they've got to pass through deep waters. Well, they're up against that, but they're caught between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And they are there because God has deliberately led them to that place. There's no way backward. There's no way forward, humanly speaking. And so they cry out to God, um, or they end up complaining to Moses. And Moses cries out to God in chapter 14. He tells him, hold out your staff and move forward. And as they do, the seas are parted, the ground is dry, and they make it to the other side. So when God sees their faith, he supplies and provides safety to the other side. Pharaoh's army tries to get through, and they get swallowed up in the water, and the Egyptian army dies. Then we move to chapter 15, to Mara. Now, they worship God and exalt Him for 21 verses of chapter 15, but then they come to Mara, and it appears they forgot the Red Sea because they come there, and God deliberately leads them to that place, to Mara, where there is bitter water. There's not a water source or water supply that is sufficient for their needs. Well, they again complain to Moses as if God is not the God of the plagues, Passover, and the Red Sea. Moses cries out to God, and God tells Moses, take a step of faith before Israel. And that step of faith consisted of throwing a tree into the bitter water. Now, there's nothing naturalistic about this. We don't know what kind of tree it was. It certainly doesn't have properties that cleanse water. It's just simply an act of faith. Moses throws it in there because God directs him to, and it cleanses the water, and it makes it drinkable. And so Israel has a temporary water source, and then God moves them there down a little bit further in chapter 15. Uh, and um, to chapter 15 and verse 27 to Elam, where there are, there's one well per tribe for Israel, a place of 12 wells. Well, then they go into the wilderness of Shin in chapter 16. And there, it's as if they have forgotten about the God of the Red Sea, the God of the waters, Mara. They forgot about the God of the plagues and the God of Passover. And they complain to Moses that we don't have any food. They cry out to him. There's an implicit cry from Moses unto God. And God says, well, I want you to exercise some faith. I'm going to rain down quail upon you every day. And God did that for 40 years. And I'm going to provide manna 
on the ground for you to collect. Now, you only collect enough for one day. Otherwise, you wake up the next morning, it will stink, and it will be corrupted with worms. However, the day before the Sabbath, I'm going to pull off another miracle. And that is you collect twice as much as you need. Now, during an ordinary day during the week, if you do that, it's going to stink by the next morning. But I'm going to preserve it when you collect twice as much as you need because I don't want you gathering anything on the Sabbath. I don't want you working on the Sabbath, God tells them. And that's precisely what they do. They exercise that faith and God provides for them for decades from then on out. And then the final story that follows the same pattern is in chapter 17. Look with me there, and we're going to read this text from verses 1 through 7, and you'll see this same pattern. God leads them into some trouble where a human need cannot be met. Uh, Moses cry, uh, The people complain about it. Moses cries out to God. God says, take a step of faith, and he supplies their need. Now, you remember how many uh, Jews are in the nation of Israel at this time. What's their population? Do you recall? Two million Jews and livestock, which I have no way of calculating that. They all need food and they all need water. Every last one of them. The average human needs a gallon of water every day. Livestock, I have no idea. I'm sure it's at least that much, if not much more. So to supply the daily needs of Israel, let's say it's safe to say they need three or four million gallons of water a day. Chapter 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Shin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. See, God led them to a place of trouble, crisis, chaos. There's no water to drink here. God deliberately led them to that place. And so, verse number 2. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water to drink that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take into your hand your rod with which you struck the river, the Nile River, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massah, and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That's the pattern that is found here in chapters 14 to 17. What Israel learned is that when they did the will of God, God provided for them. And I'd say to you, that's the most important thing that you can learn. Or to put it in terms of J. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary, 19th century missionary, whose mission organization is still thriving, around the world, even in this day. He said, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. You do God's will and God will come through every time. God will not put his work into dishonor 
by failing to supply and provide for his people. So you know what the key here is? Here's your business. Your business is not to figure out where your needs are going to be met. That's none of your business. Your need is not to figure out how you're going to supply the needs for your life and work. That's none of your business. That's not your job. You have one job. I have one job. All the earth has one job. God's people have one job. And that is do the will of God. Then God comes through and takes care of every need. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. And there are two truths I want to surface this morning with you that will help drive this particular point home. And the first point is this. God's direction in your life will usually create a crisis. Now that's, that's actually what happened here in chapter 17. Uh, God deliberately leads them to Rephidim where there is no water and they cry out against Moses. They contend and their contention is so intense they want to kill him. Well, that's not the first time this has happened. It's happened by the Red Sea in chapter 14 as well. They cry out and they complain to Moses as well in chapter 14 uh, whenever Pharaoh's army begins to chase them down in verse number 11. Here's what they say. Because there are no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Is not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And they're just moments from the Red Sea party. It creates difficulty. God's will did for them. It created challenges. In chapter 15, verse 22, there's no water there. Chapter 16, there's no food. There's no meat. There's no bread at all. They are there, by the way, in every one of these places, at the Red Sea, at Marah, at Shin, and at Rephidim, precisely because God deliberately led them to a place where there was no human supply and no human way their need could be met. Now look, there are going to be at least three kinds of trouble that you will face in your life. But of those three kinds, let me just say this. You can't escape trouble in life. You're either in trouble now, you're coming out of a trouble, or you're headed to one. There's no escaping trouble, none whatsoever. You are going to have difficulty. Jesus said so. John 16, In this world you have tribulation. You're going to have it. But what you, so you have no choice about that. What you do have a choice about is the kind of trouble that you find yourself in. The enemy can create trouble for you. Uh, the demonic can conspire in such a way as to make trouble for you. Or you can get yourself into trouble. Or third, the trouble that you experience can be because you're doing the will of God. You cannot escape the reality of trouble, but you can make sure that the trouble you are in and that you are facing, you are facing precisely because God has gotten you there. Now, this inspired one um, Quaker uh, adherent to pray and talk to God one time, and he said, God, I'm not surprised you don't have any more friends than you do seeing how you treat the friends you do have. <laughs> well, there, there's some reality there. I wouldn't quite put it that way, but this is what God does with his friends. 
He's directing you deliberately in a place where there's no human supply, and it's going to take the intervention of God for your needs to get met. This is what God often does. So God's direction in your life usually results in some kind of chaos. It usually results in some kind of crisis. It usually results in some kind of trouble, and there's a reason why. There is a reason why. That will become apparent throughout the balance of the message. But this is what God often does. Now, Israel is facing this, and they have forgotten, they have forgotten exactly what it is God has done for them in the past. They've lost sight of that, and it becomes a terrible, terrible difficulty. I did read about one young lady uh, on Twitter who uh, posted that her college roommates got together one weekend in the city where she was and left her out. They wanted to party all weekend but left her out because she's walking with God by faith. And she said it stings, but this is what happens when you walk with God by faith. And so um, the problem with Israel is that they ended up forgetting the God of the plagues, the God of Passover, the God of the Red Sea, the God of water, the God of manna, the God of quail, the God who burst open rocks and produces at least three million gallons of water for an entire nation from a rock for the cost merely of faith. Now listen to me real carefully. Please, oh please hear me. This is why you've got to develop the discipline of keeping your gaze and your focus and concentration on who God is. You've got to keep your eyes there. Whenever you concentrate on the faithfulness and the power of God. You strengthen yourself in the will of God. And I mean, that needs to take up 90, 95% of your gray matter when you're walking with God in His will. So when you concentrate on the faithfulness and the power of God, you're strengthening yourself. You're strengthening your resolve. You're strengthening your faith to walk with God. But listen to me carefully. When you focus on the difficulties of doing the will of God, you've just begun the process of talking yourself out of the will of God, and you'll do it every time. You've got to concentrate on Him, and don't forget who He is. And so, the truth is, is that God's direction in our lives will usually lead to some kind of difficulty. But there's a second truth I want you to notice as well, and that is God's provision in your life will always require faith. It will always require faith. In other words, there's no way you get in or out of this without trusting God, unless you want to live a life of frustration, unless you just want to fail at following God, unless you want to create chaos in your family with those closest to you and those who observe you. God's provision in your life will always require faith. Now, Israel had abundant reason to trust God. He was the God of plagues. Um, and, and it's real clear what happened in the plagues. Egypt suffered, and Israel did not. Israel didn't suffer as a result of the plagues. Egypt suffered powerfully. And the text makes that very clear. For example, in chapter 8, verse 22, there's the plague of flies. How would you like to have a plague of flies? My goodness, they're all over. And the land is corrupted and deteriorates because of the number of flies. In chapter 8, verse 22, it says the Egyptians got the flies, but Israel wasn't touched by one of them. Chapter 8, verse 22. Then chapter 9, verse 6, there's the plague of diseased livestock. The Egyptian livestock suffer disease, and they die 
none of the Israelite livestock suffer at all. And they're all in the same nation. Then chapter 9, verse 25, there's the plague of hail. And the Egyptians suffer the plague of hail. It destroys their crops. It tears uh, apart trees. Uh, the text makes clear. But none of the hail fell on Israel. Chapter 10, verse 23, there's the plague of darkness. Egypt couldn't get any light to save its life. Apparently, it couldn't start any fires. There was nothing it could do to produce any kind of light. And the sun apparently was blocked out in chapter 10. But in chapter 10, verse 23, Israel had light. It's what took place. So it is very, very clear to Israel that they can trust their God, that He takes a deep interest in them. He's watching over them. He has selected them and chosen them as His missionary people, and He's going to care for them all the way through. Then in chapter 12, verse 23, we have the final plague, and that happens to be the, uh, the, vis the visitation of the death angel to the firstborn in the family. Well, the firstborn in Egypt, whether human or livestock, dives, but none of the Israelites do because they, they post the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. Now, if that blood flows in the direction you're imagining, it uh, prefigures the cross of Jesus Christ. God redeemed them and covered them with the blood of the Lamb, and that's what God wants to do for the whole world if they'll simply repent and place faith in Jesus, which you can do today. And so they are walking with the God of the plagues. They're walking with the God of Passover. And then God continues to perform great works in their lives at the Red Sea, at Marah, in the wilderness of Shin, and at Rephidim. And so their faith should be built. They've got 10 million reasons to trust God. Now that's what we do in our own walk with God. They can look at their history and build their faith. You should be able to identify in your history places where God has come through for you and use that to build your walk in faith in Him. Now, if you're just starting out with Jesus and you're trembling and your teeth are chattering, number one, welcome to the club. It doesn't change when you walk with God. But number two, as time goes on, it may not be nearly as intense because you build a history with God and you can identify places where God has come through. The biggest moment of change in my life came when I was 16 years old and I met the Lord Jesus and He radically changed my life. So I believe every person I meet can be radically changed by Jesus Christ on the basis of what the Word says and, and on what I've seen in my own life in the life of others. God directed me in whom to marry. So I really believe strongly that God will lead us in those kinds of decisions. God has blessed every one of my children and put a flame in their heart for Jesus. I think He can do that in our families. So I can go back and identify some places in my personal history, in my life history, where God has intervened and that builds a trajectory for the future. If God was faithful in the past, He's not changing in the future, folks. He's going to be faithful all the way through. He's going to see this thing all the way through. And that's how you anticipate what is going to take place in the future by letting God build in you a history of faithfulness. But you've got to trust Him. You never make it through without trusting God. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 will say, without faith... It is impossible to please God. Not unlikely, it is simply impossible. Now, Israel takes some steps of faith. In chapter 14, they've got to start heading towards the Red Sea when there's still a sea in the way. And it's only once they arrive that God parts it and makes the land dry ground upon which they can walk. In chapter 
uh, in chapter 15, verse number 25, Moses has got to do something totally irrelevant to water quality. And that is chunk a tree in the middle of the water. Now you can just hear the Hebrews complaining. Here we are dying of thirst and he's throwing trees in water. You can just imagine the complaint, can't you? And, and, and that's what Moses has to do. He has to trust God enough to do something that apparently is irrelevant and God comes through and makes the water drinkable. Then leads them to a place at Elam where there are actually 12 wells one well for every tribe in Israel. And then in uh, chapter 16, verses 21 through 24, they had to gather just enough for a day on the regular days of the week, but the day before the Sabbath, twice as much. They had to express some faith. And then in chapter 17, Moses had to do something irrelevant to water as well, and that is simply strike a rock. I want to tell you, in all my years, I kicked a few rocks around on gravel roads, when I was a boy, I would take some rocks, throw them up, and hit them with a baseball bat. Not the smartest thing in the world to do. It ruins the bat. But nevertheless, I've done that before. And never one time have I ever gotten any water from any rock. But when Moses did it, it was enough to take care of an entire nation and all the livestock. Remarkable. So he had to express and demonstrate his faith. And every time God came through for Israel. Now, let me put it to you this way. If what you propose to do drives you into desperate seasons of prayer, knowing there is no humanly possible way for you to succeed, you probably have a hold of God's will. If it causes your teeth to chatter and your knees to knock, if it inflames your prayer life with desperation, if you see no way forward, humanly speaking, there's a good chance you have a hold of the will of God. However, if you are not stretched almost to the point of breaking in your prayer life, remains the same. And if you can see a human way forward, you might just be doing your own will and not God's. This is the pattern God establishes with His people. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now let me assure you of something. Faith is not a leap in the dark, it's a step into the light. With permission, I want to tell you about our experience with Jonathan, with his permission. He was diagnosed at the age of three with autism spectrum disorder. And God gave his mother and me deep and abiding peace that God would build him up and make him a man of God. On the day his diagnosis came, spoke to our hearts just as clearly as I'm speaking to you today, even more clearly. It was louder than this. He made it abundantly clear. He was going to do a neat work in Jonathan's life. But we had moved from, North, uh, from South Carolina to North Carolina, and Sherry Michelle pressed pediatricians with these needs, and they thought she was oversensitive, but she wouldn't be quiet. And she finally found a pediatrician at Capital Pediatrics in Raleigh, North Carolina, who listened, and within moments, they had the wheels in motion to take care of his needs. We were there, 
Jonathan got the therapy and treatment that he needed. Then we moved to Alabama and served there, where he was mainstreamed in school, and um, his uh, skills, his social skills, everything just developed, which is remarkable for an autistic kid. It's very, very difficult. And he did, and he did very well. Then we moved to Gwinnett County, Georgia, where he got the special uh, attention he needed in school with people precisely like him on the developmental skill. It's just remarkable. And we always wondered, God, why won't you just let us stay in one place? We really just want to stay in one place. We don't like moving around. We, we'd like, I mean, we love the people that we're with. We got a great ministry here. You know, there, there's just no need to go anywhere. What in the world's going on? And it was frankly quite confusing. And it was always heartbreaking to leave the churches, whether the one in uh, South Carolina or North Carolina or Alabama. It really broke our hearts. It hurt. In fact, we go back there now and we kind of feel like we've gone back home just because we were so tight with everybody. So it was really confusing why we're moving until one day I picked up some research on the developmental needs and developmental stages of kids with autism and the lights came on in just a moment. It didn't take two or three minutes reading through this article to understand what God was doing in our life. What we found is that every time Jonathan came upon a developmental need, we were living in a place where it could not be met and God moved us to a place where it could be met. Every single time. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to tell you something. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's a step into the light, even if you don't know it. That's how God leads. That's how God directs. That's why I'm urging you, sweet people, listen to me carefully. Cherish and treasure and do the will of God no matter what. All the days of your life. Now, I've told you my story before, and I don't want to rehearse too much more of it this morning, really in of it, frankly. But my childhood and adolescence were made very sorrowful by uh, choices adults made uh, in my life that were beyond my control. And much of it revolved around rejecting God's will and God's ways. And as a result, uh, I suffered the blowback from it. That's why it was a relief to come to Jesus Christ and to meet a God who knows how to run lives. I mean, the kind of God that builds remarkable lives. Hey, listen, if God has a son like Jesus, isn't he a rather good father? And I discovered I can connect with that God and he can direct my life. Well, I'd seen so much chaos from people making their own choices and doing their own will. I didn't want any part of that. So rebellion for me when I came to Christ was rebelling against the world and doing God's will is what it ended up being. So we've rocked along now since 1982 trying to follow Jesus to the best of our ability. And I want to tell you the point at which I've come today. Here's the point where I am. I am not afraid of doing God's will. Doing God's will does not keep me up at night. Doing God's will does not intimidate me or frighten me. I'm not afraid of doing God's will. What I'm afraid of is missing it in doing my own will. That's where I am in my walk with Jesus. 
Well, you may be asking the question, okay, how do I find out the will of God? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. In fact, I'm going to give you an answer to that that might frustrate you, and I don't mean to. Okay? Three things real quickly. How do I find the will of God? Number one, surrender. Surrender. Present your bodies a living sacrifice to Him and give yourself completely away to Him and tell Him, Oh God, I'll do your will. I'll leave the consequences with you. I'm abandoned completely to your will. I'll do whatever you want me to do. If you'll do that one thing, eventually things will fall into place. Okay? You need the other two, but if you'll take care of that one thing and surrender to God's will, it's going to work for you. You'll eventually discover it. But the second thing is engage in the spiritual disciplines. Do a face plant in the Bible every day. Trust what God says in His Word. Pray, especially prayers of surrender in faith. And ask God to bless you all the way through. And then the um, third thing that you do is that you not only surrender and you not only engage in the spiritual disciplines, but uh, the third thing is to just go ahead and do what you already know God wants you to do. In other words, you need to know. If you want to know something else about God's will, you need to be doing now what you already know God wants you to do, or He's not showing you the next thing. He doesn't do that. We've got to embrace what He's already said we need to do. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He said, with the goodness of God to plan our highest, uh, with the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, with the wisdom of God to plan it, And with the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? If you will do the will of God, all of heaven will be concentrated on your life to take care of every one of your needs. Now, let me ask you, are you surrendered? Are you surrendered? You can do that this morning. The second thing, are you already doing what you know to do? You know what the Bible says God does want you to do? It says some things he doesn't want you to do. But there's one in particular that's especially applicable right now. And that is 2 Peter 3.9. He's not willing that any should perish. God does not will for anyone to bust hell wide open. God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth according to 1 Timothy 2. If you don't know Christ as Savior, that is your first step to knowing and doing the will of God. It could be that. So you, you repent and place faith in Jesus Christ. You repudiate delay. You repudiate unbelief. You repudiate anything that keeps you from Jesus. And then you trust His death and resurrection of the cross for your salvation. could be that you've done that, but you need to follow Christ in baptism. I can't tell you the number of people that have been saved and baptized, and the whole arena of God's will just blows wide open. And they begin to discover what God wants for their life. And it's a new day for them. Could be God wants you to become part of Beach Haven, but I want to ask you to stand right now. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to ask you to come. Father, thank you for hearing us. Thank you for the good news of your word. We bless you that your spirit is here. and dear God.